0: Good evening and welcome to the final Long Now Seminar of the Decade here at SF SFJAZZ. My name is Nicholas Paul Breisowitz and I'm the Director of Development here at the Long Now Foundation. And I'd like to begin tonight by thanking all of you out there who support this series and who support our foundation with your regular Long Now membership. Especially I'd like to thank all of you out there who were able to upgrade your membership this year, earlier when we were asking, uh, for people to go from $8 a month to $12 a month. That show of support means the world to us, and it actually makes a huge difference, especially when you aggregate it all together. If you take all of your memberships together, it actually makes up a significant fraction of our general operating budget every single year. And the other significant fraction of that general operating budget arrives at the end of every year in November and December, during the giving season, as part of our annual fundraising campaign, uh, where a lot of people who support this work and believe in this mission uh, write, you know, do a special one-time tax-deductible gifts to the Long Now Foundation to support our work for another year. And there's lots of different ways to plug in. We're always looking for sponsors of the seminar series. There's the bottles at the interval, which can be uh, donated for. We also are looking for sponsors for the bookshelves at the interval. And I still have a few equation of time cams uh, if you want to own a piece of the clock as well. So we'd ask that if you can this year, please consider including us in your philanthropic plans. Uh, It would mean the world to us. And please don't forget to ask your employer about gift-matching opportunities. Uh, A lot of employers, as you probably know, will match your donations to Long Now, one-to-one, two-to-one, and I even know some companies that'll do three-to-one or more. And uh, with, on that note, and without any further ado, I'll leave you with tonight's inspirational long short with audio from uh, Neil Gaiman from our 2015 Long Now seminar. Thank you. Enjoy the
1: show. The Long Now, the clock of the Long Now, is about planning for the long term and thinking in the long term, in a world in which people appear to be thinking in the shorter and shorter term. Tom Sebo concluded you couldn't actually create a story that would last 10,000 years. You could only create a story that would last for three generations for ourselves, for our children for their children. But what we can do, I think, is try and create stories that are interesting enough and important enough that our grandchildren might want to tell those stories to their grandchildren. Because that's the purpose of stories. It's what they're for. They make life worth living and sometimes, they keep us alive.
2: Thank you, Neil Gaiman. Uh, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, The speaker tonight is, as usual, talking in the sort of usual 10,000-year frame. Uh, He focuses especially on the last 200 years. He says that starting about 1800, a number of trends got going that are surprisingly good news and that are continuing to uh, accelerate and have impact but it's more than a 200-year now. He's actually a 210-year now because he has made some long bets, 10-year-long bets about the U.S., mostly about the U.S. economy, Um, 14 bets that he is putting up $100,000 of his own money uh, to back these bets. And if you see things in tonight's talk that seem like that, can't be true and it certainly can't play out the way this guy thinks it will think about what you'd like to bet with him on long (laughs) about that so money where his mouth is andrew mcafee i'm stuart brand the curator of this series of talks from the long now foundation in san francisco The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world.
3: Stuart, thanks so much. I think, like a number of people here, I first came across Stuart Brandon's work from the Whole Earth Catalog. My mom actually had some early issues of it. And I remember keenly being this extremely socially awkward preteen in Indiana I remember that really, really, really cleanly. But but coming across this and having some kind of periscope or portal to a completely different world and a completely different way of thinking that I became enamored of and I've been carrying with me, I think I first met Stuart about 10 years ago at a conference, and I honestly sat by myself in the corner trying to work up the courage (laughs) to go talk to him because I, I, I was fanboying him that hard. And I went up and we had the most stilted, awful conversation. <laughs> because I, I had stars in my eyes, and it was this complete movie star moment. I think I actually asked him if he did his own stunts. It was that, it was that level of horrible. But things have improved a little bit since then, and I'm thrilled. This is kind of like the, the geek equivalent of getting asked to give a recital at Carnegie Hall, being asked to come and give a Long Now seminar is just, it really is a dream come true. So Stuart, thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Whether or not we end on a high note tonight, we're gonna start on a low note. I wanna give kind of a a very quick guided tour litany of some of the very big problems that we're confronting right now. And I wish I could say it was hard work to come up with this litany It wasn't, right? You fire up your browser and immediately you start hearing how many years we have left to reverse this trend of global warming where we are cooking the planet and the downside risks, the list of really bad things that could happen, appears to be actually unlimited. That's how bad it can be. A number of people think that we might be at the beginning, some signs are showing up, that we might be at the beginning of one of the rare but really bad news mass extinction events in the world's history. It could be driving many of our fellow creatures out of existence and pollution is literally everywhere on our planet by now. The source of all these problems is obvious to everybody here. Unfortunately, it's us. We are the driver of these things that's happening. And in particular, this this mania that we seem to have for more, for growth, for higher populations, for higher levels of economic activity, for economic growth year after year. We've built this relentless, voracious engine of more, and a lot of people think that is the fundamental problem and maybe one that doesn't have a lot of obvious solutions. And what I want to do is dive in on this, approach this question of can we keep doing this growth thing by looking at our history of realizing, articulating, and confronting very, very big problems that we faced in the past. And to introduce our first big problem, let's have a pop quiz. Uh, Does anyone recognize this famous pessimist? Shout it out if you know it. Yeah, so this is our friend, the Reverend Thomas Malthus, whose name has given us an adjective, Malthusian, (laughs) that I at least use as an insult toward other people (laughs) to connote that they're being too gloomy and too pessimistic. Because Malthus published an essay right at the end of the 18th century where he said, look gang, we got a problem. Most of us are going to starve, no matter what we do about it. And Malthus's point was, look, you can do the math, it's pretty simple, the size of human communities tends to grow exponentially, two, four, eight, 16. Malthus said our ability to take resources from the earth to feed ourselves only grows linearly, two, three, four, five. Those two lines are going to cross at some point, and when they do, really unpleasant corrective mechanisms kick in, like starvation, deprivation, privation, drives down the size of the human community. So he said, if you think about population and prosperity as these two axes, we would like to live here, but we can't, that's actually not how it works. And in the essay, he was really clear that we're essentially doomed to oscillate between these two states, between a state where there aren't very many of us, and we're comparatively well off, and then we start having more kids because things are good. We outstrip the, our ability to take food and other resources from the land, and these cruel corrective mechanisms kick back in, and we go back down the pendulum. Now, a lot of us carry around the notion that Malthus was actually a pretty lousy forecaster, and we're going to sharpen that intuition. One of the things I learned when I was researching more from Les, he was a weirdly good historian. And we say this because thanks to some wonderful work by economic historians like Gregory Clark, we now have a pretty good glimpse about what happened over hundreds of years in decent sized communities, the English economy is one that we have good data on, going back hundreds of years about our relationship on these two axes of population and prosperity. So I wanna walk you through a few hundred years of the situation in England leading up to the publication of Malthus's essay. So here's what the 1200s looked like in England. Here are the 1300s, here are the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. Things got a little bit better in the 1700s because our agricultural practices improved, but look at that line for the 1700s. Throughout that century, the average Briton was worse off than they were in the year 1200. We really were living in this world that Malthus described. But doesn't feel like we live there anymore, at least to the same extent. And a very short explanation for what changed, what happened, is I think this gentleman. Pop quiz number two. If he had to name the father of the Industrial Revolution, who would that be? So here's James Watt. And the reason James Watt's name is famous is that he tinkered enough to build an economically efficient steam engine and for the first time allowed us human beings to tap into the crazy amounts of energy stored in the world's fossil fuels. And the world changed as a result of Watt's inventions and the other technologies and institutions of the Industrial Revolution. We're probably tired of hearing the Industrial Revolution changed everything, We still underestimate it. I think it's very hard to overstate how big a deal this transition was and how much the world changed as a result. I want to show how big a deal it was by continuing to draw exactly that same graph. So here we are back at population and prosperity, and we're going to look at a couple more centuries worth of data. To do that though, we have to take all the data that we've already looked at and shrink it down into that corner of the graph because this is what the 1800s looked like in England, and this is what the 1900s looked like. We finally get to that quadrant of the graph where we don't face that oscillation, that trade-off between high prosperity and high population. The trajectory of this country anyway changes and assumes a shape that we have never, ever seen before as far back as we can look. And another way to say what's going on is that when there are more and more English people, and their average prosperity is going up, this is the same thing as saying that GDP is growing like we've never ever seen before. So GDP is just a measure of how much total stuff the economy produces and it was really boring for hundreds of years and then that graph completely changed shape after the Industrial Revolution. This is not just an English story. If you look at the entire world, they started from a lower place, but then their prosperity throughout the globe has increased even more quickly. Around the world, GDP is about 100 times higher than it was in 1800. So we don't worry so much about these Malthusian dilemmas. In fact, we can actually look at the exact phenomenon Malthus was interested in, these deprivation-induced famines, and see how they have changed over time. There's fantastic data um, on Famine deaths by decade. This is some morbid stuff to look at, but you can go grab data on famine deaths by decade, going back about 150 years, and you notice they're tailing off in recent decades. This is a great phenomenon. This is kind of surprising because this is what happened to the world's population over that exact same time. As our population has really increased more quickly than ever before, famine deaths are actually going down instead of going up. And it's even more impressive to me, if we gray out the famines that are due to the unbelievably bad economic mistake of collectivizing, of putting all your people in collective farms and having a centrally planned economy, that is a really great way to generate dire famines. If we gray those out and look at the famines generated by the rest of the world, you just see a drop off like we've never seen before. So Malthus was a weirdly good amateur historian, a terribly bad forecaster, because the problem that he identified, we we simply can't feed anybody, that was overturned by the industrial revolution and worries about mass famines have just, they've just faded away as we've moved deeper and deeper into the industrial era. And as we had about more than 150 years worth of experience in this era, we started to get alarmed about another pretty dire problem. And in fact, in a sense, the opposite of the Malthus problem. The second problem that we started to worry about a lot was we were just going to exhaust the bounty of the earth. Malthus said we can't possibly scratch enough of a living from the earth. This is the opposite. This is, we're going to take everything. We're going to take all the resources, all the minerals, all the productive capacity of the earth. As we continue to increase the size of our populations, the size of our economies, our voracious appetites are going to deplete this planet that we all live on. We started to hear this a lot around the time of the first Earth Day in 1970. I am pretty sure, I haven't asked Stuart directly, I am pretty sure he was somewhere on the scene of one of these Earth Day (laughs) gatherings that happened all across the country. And you can look at the data that was available around the time of Earth Day, and you might come to the same conclusion. So here again, this is the American economy. We're going to switch over to America because the evidence is actually much, uh, much better and goes back pretty far here. Here's 170 years, almost the entire industrial era, of the American economy coming up to the year 1970, coming up to the first Earth Day. This is the growth of the economy. We might like that. This is how much energy we needed to generate that economy year after year. These two lines go up completely in lockstep. This is an extraordinarily tight relationship to the point that we actually had a shorthand, and if you looked at the total amount of energy consumed in an economy, you would have a really good guess of how advanced that economy was. There's a lot of research that treated these two as synonyms for each other. And it wasn't just energy, it wasn't just fossil fuels. If you look, we're going to home in on the 20th century now, and if you look at our consumption year after year of some other pretty important resources, you'd come to the same conclusion. This is what our total use year after year of some important metals was, of the, of the main fertilizers that we use. And you start to look at it and say, hey, uh, I think we have a problem. We live on a finite planet, and these exponential curves don't show any sign of running out of steam. Those gray lines can't really keep doing what they're doing indefinitely. And there was this wonderful series of relatively gloomy books written right around the time of the first Earth Day. I am actually not sure that last title needs the exclamation point. (laughs) I think we get it. But this was the first round of really deep concern about this trajectory that we were on with our population and our economic growth. And you can go back and you can find people saying very similar things to what we're hearing today. That Gang, this can't continue. We have to stop this. We are making an ongoing very, very serious mistake. The solution is kind of unpleasant. The solution is that we have to walk away from growth itself. And this is when you started to hear about the degrowth movement, nicely articulated here, says, look, leveling off our consumption is not enough. Flatlining is actually not enough. We have to make that green line, that line of GDP start going down over time if we want those gray lines of total resource use to actually also go down. And the slogan that you started to hear was that the only sustainable growth for us, for our societies, and for our planet, was degrowth. I want to make one thing as clear as I possibly can. We did not do this. (laughs) We Americans, look around, we Americans have not voluntarily (laughs) renounced affluence, growth, prosperity, having a better standard of living year after year. We have not en masse just kind of turned into a nation of Buddhist monks and renounced all of that. Uh, We Americans, we like our prosperity. We like our our affluence. We actually, we like our stuff. I I love this image so much, this kind of post-war dream of what American prosperity looked like. There was a lot of stuff there. And to be quantitative about it, here is the American economy up till about 1970, Here's what's been happening in the years since 1970. That exponential growth just keeps going. Maybe it's slowed down a little bit from the go-go post-war years, but our economy is more than two and a half times as big as it was during the time of Earth Day. The world's economy, once again, has started from a lower place but grown even more quickly. The world's economy is about three and a half times as big as it was in 1970. So, you know, you see that and you start to get concerned that these Earth Day folk were onto something here. I want to talk about two really surprising things that I learned when I was researching the book, having to do with those gray lines, with our use of resources. And the first is the relationship between that growth that we just looked at and scarcity versus abundance versus affordability of the physical building blocks, of the resources that we use to construct an economy. And to be clear, scarcity and affordability are essentially opposites here. As things become more scarce, they become more expensive, they become less affordable. In fact, just the threat that a resource might become scarce is enough to send the prices through the roof. We see this with every episode of instability in the Middle East. Oil prices take a nice sharp bump upward because we anticipate the wells haven't been shut off yet, but we anticipate that oil and other hydrocarbons are going to become scarce, the price effect is immediate here. So a really important way to think about this issue of scarcity is to just look at the price signals, because the price signals are really, really clear signals. I want to show you what those price signals about affordability look like, but I just want to underscore this point that the growth has continued. I want to home in on about a 40-year period starting in 1980 and ending right now. And again, this is the population of the world. It's increased by almost 75% over that 40-year period. This is some of the fastest population growth that we've ever witnessed in the history of the world. The total GDP, the total economic output of the world has increased by about two and a half times over that 40-year period. Again, this is by the span of human history, this is extraordinarily fast growth. So we're building our societies, our populations, our economies are growing. That has to put some strain on resources, right? A lot of us would expect, myself included, a lot of us would expect that this crazy unprecedented growth would cause resources to become more scarce, would cause them to become less affordable over time. So let's look at that. And I want to cite the work of a couple scholars who are involved in something called the Simon Abundance Project. And they come up with a really clever way to look at this issue of affordability of resources over time. And the way they approached it was to say, okay, let's start with 1980. How much of these different resources, they have a bundle of 50 different commodities or resources, and they asked themselves a really interesting question. They said, how much of each one of these different 50 things could the world's average worker buy with one hour of their labor? And this is nice, because it gets us out of rich world versus developing world, just like take all the workers in the world, find that one right there at 50%, calculate what that person's hourly wage was. Turns out you have the evidence to do all these things. And then say, okay, it's that amount of money. How much can they buy with that hour's worth of money in a bunch of different categories? In categories like food. You know, let's say that the world's average worker could buy one bag of oranges in 1980 with one hour's worth of work. I have no idea if the bag is the right unit of measure here, just humor me on this. How much plywood could they buy? Could they buy one sheet of plywood with an hour's worth of work? Could they buy one pound of copper? Could they buy one big lump of coal? Let's just look at how much somebody could buy with an hour, the average person in the world, with an hour of their labor, In 1980. And then where things get clever is they say, okay, let's do the same calculation for 1981, 1982, let's march through the years and look at what happens to the amount of time that same average person has to work in order to buy exactly that same quantity of oranges, plywood, copper, coal, whatever. And the intuition here is that if the number of minutes they have to work starts going down, that's a really nice way to say that the resources have become more affordable. If the average number of minutes they have to work goes up, that means resources are getting less affordable, which is a really good synonym for they're getting more scarce out there on the face of the planet. So let's look at what happened over this about 40-year period. Here's what's happened to the bundle of foodstuffs. That includes that bag of oranges. It includes fish meal, chicken, pork, beef, you know, stuff that we eat. It's gone down pretty substantially. The products that we take from nature, wood, cotton, timber, wool, stuff like that, also gone down a lot. Materials are a little bit spikier, spikier, metals and minerals. Uh, The rise of China as the world's factory caused a bit of a spike in metals prices but they wind up still at a pretty low place. And even though prices for fuels just bounce all over the place for lots of geopolitical reasons, the trend there is also a pretty downward trend. If you just take the straight average of all 50 of those resources and look at what happened over time, this is what the line looks like. So essentially, the bundle that the world's average person had to work for an hour to get in 1980 By 2018, they had to work about 20 minutes to get exactly that same bundle. The affordability has increased by about two-thirds over that space of time. This to me is a very, very clear signal that scarcity is the opposite of what we've been experiencing over that period. Even again, as population grew very quickly, as prosperity grew very quickly. Amazingly enough, we didn't start running out of the earth. We didn't start running out of these resources. By this pretty good measure, they actually became more abundant, more affordable, more accessible to people all over the world. The other thing that I want to talk about, in addition to how affordable resources were, is how did our appetite, how did our raw appetite for resources change? Like we've already seen, our raw appetite for more consumption, for more prosperity, for more affluence, didn't really slow down at all in the years after Earth Day. But what happened to our appetite for actual molecules, actual resources or materials? How has that changed? And the results here were were deeply bizarre to me when I first saw them. I want to talk about it by building up from one industry. And I want to look at agriculture in America over a period of a few decades. And this is what the total tonnage of crops produced in America looks like. We are an agricultural powerhouse, one of the biggest in the world. We grow lots and lots of stuff, and if you weighed the total agricultural output of America year after year, the line would go pretty steadily up. That might not be too surprising. Where things get surprising to me is when I start putting the gray lines on this graph. And I start to look at what's been happening to total resource use related to agriculture. So this is what's been happening to total fertilizer use in America. And I want to be clear, this is not fertilizer use per person. This is not fertilizer use per acre. This is total tonnage of fertilizer in America used to generate that green line that goes up. We used to be increasing our fertilizer use just about in lockstep with that green line and it's been flat for decades. The total amount of water that we need to generate all that agricultural output has been going down pretty steadily for decades. The total amount of cropland, just the acres that we need to generate all that output, is on a long, slow, steady decline in the country. That's a really shallow decline. You might not think it's a big deal. It adds up over time. Uh, Since the early 1980s, We have given an amount of cropland back to nature in America equal in size to the state of Washington. It's a big chunk of land. We just don't farm it anymore. It's going back to nature gradually. If we blow up, if we look more broadly than just at the agricultural sector and blow it up to look at the economy of a whole, we see the pretty same phenomenon taking place. So again, here's our line for the total size of the U.S. economy, our total consumption and the growth in that year after year. We all know that in addition to energy, economies run on paperwork. So let's look at what's been happening to total paper consumption in America. Again, lockstep with the size of the overall economy. And then it plateaued in the early years of this century, and it's been in freefall for about the past decade. The same thing is true for the other main product that we get out of trees, different uses of timber are falling quite quickly. And I want to show you what's been happening to the big five metals that we use in America. Before I do that, I want to head off one objection. Whenever I show what's been happening to total metals consumption in America, somebody says, oh yeah, that's just because we've outsourced all of our manufacturing, all of our production to China, and we don't make things in America anymore, so of course our consumption of metals is going to go down domestically. Uh, That argument is wrong just at the start because we have not stopped making things in America. We're still a manufacturing powerhouse. Our manufacturing output goes up just about every non-recession year. We have outsourced some, absolutely. We still make things in America, and we make them more and more every year. Now, this is what our total consumption of metals has been looking like over that period of time. And we see the same kind of big decoupling of the output from all of the material inputs. As we saw earlier, our metals use used to be going up just just in lockstep with the overall size of the economy. And in particular, the size of the manufacturing sector now leveled off and in most cases actually decreasing. The other really important thing to notice about this graph is that I tried to make the line for each metal the same color as the metal. And I I really want credit for that because I think it's, thank you. (laughs) We started off by talking about energy and that complete one-for-one relationship between the size of the economy and the amount of energy generated. So let's check back in and look what's been happening since 1970. Here's where we were with energy use up until the first Earth Day. Here's what's been happening in the years since. We are decoupling profoundly the growth of our economy, the growth of our society and our prosperity from the total amount of joules or BTUs that you need to generate that economy. Our economy is about 25% bigger than it was at the end of the Great Recession. Our energy use is essentially flat all throughout that time. The added good news here is that largely because of the fracking revolution where we're burning less coal and using more natural gas to generate electricity, our total greenhouse gas emissions are actually now trending downward over time. And that red line is really interesting. It comes from a data source that takes into account the carbon generated by all the products that we import. So this really is the accurate picture of the carbon footprint of the American economy. And I think it is past its peak. It's trending down, and I will take anyone's bet that we're not gonna hit that high point ever again, or at least for the next 10 years. Now, I wanna say this really clearly. This line is not going down quickly enough. I am not encouraging any kind of complacency here. But we have finally decoupled growing our economy from generating greenhouse gases in a pretty deep way. So when I think about this problem, uh, the obvious question is, What happened? We had this massive reversal in our industrial age habits between what was happening up until about the first Earth Day and then the decades since. We've already kind of eliminated the possibility that we embraced degrowth at a massive scale. So, what did change? Why are these lines now trending downward over time? Uh, To get an answer to this, we have to go to the obvious source, which is a Radio Shack ad from 1991. This is actually a true story. There's a retired newsman in Buffalo named Steve Sishon, and his idea of a good time is to go around to yard sales in Buffalo and see if he can find things that remind him of Buffalo's past, get a sense of his own city's history. And he was at a yard sale, he saw a stack of Buffalo News newspapers from 1991, and his eyes lit up, Bought them, took them on, paid $4, I think, for them. And he's flipping through and he sees this Radio Shack ad from 1991. And he noticed something fascinating about that ad. He said there are 15 devices, physical devices, on this ad. 13 of them have completely vanished from your life and your world and they've collapsed down into this tiny little device that you carry with you all the time. Now, I don't know about you all, I don't carry a camcorder anymore, I don't think I own one, I don't have a police scanner, I don't have a fax machine anymore, I don't have a camera, I don't have an answering machine, I don't have a fax, I don't have these things, these devices are not part of my life, but I still communicate, I still take pictures, I still consume media, I still compute, I do a lot of things, I just do them with this physically very, very small, very resource, non-intensive device. For me, this counterpoint is exhibit A of the phenomenon that I got so interested in that I wrote the book about it, this phenomenon of dematerialization, by which we mean just continuing to grow our economies, our prosperity, our ability to consume, while taking fewer materials, while using fewer materials and exhausting less, not less per capita, less total of the Earth's bounty over time. The only person I think that saw this coming was Buckminster Fuller, weirdly enough. And in the 20s, he said, I think we're gonna turn the corner. He called the process ephemeralization. That's a little too hard to say, so we just say dematerialization now. (laughs) But once you become aware of it, you start to see it all over the place. It's in obvious ways and subtle ways in the foreground economy, the background of the economy. There was a really nice story in Bloomberg just a little while back about the crazy progress that we're seeing with cars and particularly car engines in the recent history of America. This is what's been happening to the average power of the car engines in America, as measured by how long it takes to go zero to 70, I think. Uh, Bloomberg pointed out that the best Toyota Camry, fastest Toyota Camry you can buy today, is almost as fast as the Aston Martin that James Bond drove around. Now, you will not be as cool as James Bond in a Camry. We can all agree on that. (laughs) But you're going to go almost as fast as he did. While that same phenomenon was taking place of engines becoming more powerful, they became lighter, they became smaller, they became lighter over time, and their fuel efficiency, especially when there are these government mandates in place, their fuel efficiency went up. It's just a win-win-win solution with the internal combustion engine that powers big parts of our economy to this day. The last example I want to give comes from a great story that I heard from a friend of mine who's had a really long career. Not Stewart in this case. I was having dinner with him early on in writing the book, and I was trying to explain what I was interested in. He said, oh, I've got a great example for you. He said, I started my career in 1968, and I went to work for a conglomerate that owned the Chicago and Northwest Railway. And he said, I got put on a team... And our assignment was to figure out where our boxcars were in the country. I said, What? He said, Yeah, we had no idea. He's, he said, The lore in our industry, in the railroad industry in 1968, was that only about 5% of our inventory, of our inventory of boxcars, moved on any given day. And it wasn't that the other 5%, 95%, needed to rest. He said, we didn't know where they were. We, we had no visibility over them. These are 30-ton assemblies of metal, and they were out running wild on the thousands of miles of railroad track." He said, we, we, just, we didn't know. He said, what we did know was that if we could take that 5% up to 10%, if we could get a 5 percentage point improvement, we would need half as many of these things. So you can imagine what that would do to your bottom line. If you could just drop your uh, inventory of these extremely heavy capital-intensive assets, if you needed half as many to generate, we would take that deal all day long. So he said our team started, we would do things like hire people called spotters, (laughs) whose job it was to stand by a railroad crossing all day, watch trains go by, and then telegraph back to HQ when they saw one of our own. This is actually why lots of boxcars still have those kinds of numbers on them. This is not just to make hobbyist train spotters' lives easier. This is because we needed to know where they were and visual signals were the only ones we had. So my friend said, you know, in the late 1960s, we started to hear about this crazy thing called the digital computer that might help us with some of the things we were interested in. So we started to kind of experiment with these. Now, obviously, fast forward to 2019, Every boxcar, every one of these huge things has an RFID tag or or three on it. There are trackside sensors all over the place. There are millions of daily EDI messages sent throughout the industry. And I'm pretty sure that every railroad in most countries knows where all of its boxcars are all of the time. We're just out of that 5%, 95% business. So you blow that up and you start to think about how much better visibility we have over the assets that we possess as companies and how much better we can use them, how utilization rates go up. And again, these are all trends that contribute to the dematerialization of the economy. So when I think about this problem that we identified that we're going to run out of the Earth's bounty, I am not worried about that as I look ahead because of these trends that we've just been looking at. I think the one-two punch that we have developed of computers, of these very powerful digital tools, and capitalism. And by that, I mean the combination of companies and private property, but really fundamentally intense competition and this intense drive to lower costs, to get a little bit ahead of your rivals, to keep winning that battle. That is a really, really powerful combination. If we had a bunch of monopolists, I would be a lot less confident about dematerialization and resource use, monopolists can just pass any increased cost onto their customer. They don't care. Companies that are engaged in authentic competition, they care a great deal. And in particular, if somebody comes along and says, hey, I can take that 5% up to 10%, 50%, 95% with this thing called the computer, companies will take that deal all day long. So this combination of intense competition that's inherent in proper capitalism and this new toolkit that we have that lets us essentially find all these opportunities to use fewer atoms, fewer molecules, fewer resources and use more and more of the digital world of bits and data, man, that's a powerful combination. It is letting us live in an era of affordability and abundance instead of scarcity and it's letting us lighten our footprint over time on the earth. I, this is, uh, the evidence is pretty clear to me in America. Unfortunately, other countries haven't kept such detailed records about their materials use over time. I think dematerialization is a pretty common phenomenon in the richest countries in the world. I think it's gonna spread pretty quickly as well. And maybe we can talk about that during the Q and A. Uh, so I've been cheerleading pretty hard. If you've been listening and thinking I'm a cheerleader for this combination of capitalism and technology, you're absolutely right. but. Every decent economist that I know would say there's a very important categories of problem that this combination does not solve, is not set up to solve, and really we shouldn't look here to address it. And in particular, this third category of big problem, that we are polluting the world progressively over time, and we are being really hard on a lot of the animals, a lot of the creatures that we share the planet with. Uh, computers and capitalism, as popular, as powerful as they are, they're not going to deal with these problems, and and these are real problems. The year before Earth Day, this is the Cuyahoga River in downtown Cleveland, it caught on fire. This is actually not a picture of the 1969 fire in Cleveland. This is a picture of, I think, the 1954 fire on the river in Cleveland. Apparently, by the time 1969 came around, the people of Cleveland were so used to the river catching on fire, that nobody even took a snapshot of, it It just part of your day. But our bodies of water, and particularly the ones that that flowed by manufacturing centers, these are terribly polluted places. The air in our skies was getting worse steadily in the years leading up to the first Earth Day. Some of us in this room, as I look around, probably remember when you would get smog alerts or air alerts on your drive into work every day. And smog and haze were a fact of life in most American cities not too, too long ago. Uh, This is the passenger pigeon. In 1815, the great naturalist James Audubon was traveling through America, and he saw a flock of passenger pigeons flying overhead. He said it took three days for the flock to pass, and at times it was so dense that it blotted out the sun. The last passenger pigeon died in a zoo in Cincinnati in 1914. In a century, we took this animal and wiped it off the face of the Earth. We almost did the same with a bunch of other animals. Uh, And this just strikes me as just this moral just crime, just this huge mistake. This is the biggest animal that's ever lived on the planet Earth. This is the blue whale. And I kind of had this naive idea before I started working on the book that whales got in real trouble during the 19th century when we hunted them for their oil and it was the, you know, the Moby Dick era of whaling. That was the warm-up act. Whales got in really serious trouble during the 20th century when us ingenious human beings, we invented the rocket-launched grenade-tipped harpoon and we invented giant ships that were essentially carving boards so that you didn't have to limit yourself to whales that floated after they were dead. The reason the right whale is called the right whale is because it was the right one to hunt in the 19th century when you needed a whale that would float after it was killed. Humpbacks, blue whales, lots of other ones don't. In the 20th century, that stopped being a problem. We could hunt them very effectively, And we did, we drove them to the brink of extinction. If there were this many blue whales in the world's Southern Oceans in 1900, there are about this many left by 1973. Far as we can tell, there are about 500 individual of these animals left on the planet in the early 1970s. We hunted them to make lubricants and margarine. We had other sources to make these materials, right? But we went after whales. It's just, just, I can't wrap my mind around what a mistake that is. So the reason that I'm intensely grateful to the environmental movement, to the voices of Earth Day, is that they said, stop. You cannot keep doing this. You can't keep polluting our skies and our water. You cannot keep driving more and more animals to the brink of extinction or beyond. We demand action. And they got it. And they got it from governments that were responsive to the will of their people, that listened to evidence, that listened to expert opinion. Don't you get kind of nostalgic for those days? (laughs) But we put in place these, these limits on what you could do. We put animals outside the market. You just can't hunt them. We set up hunting seasons. We set up marine parks. And we came up with these really clever mechanisms to drive down pollution and what's been happening in the years since, since these landmark pieces of legislation were passed, the trends are absolutely fantastic. Uh, The Cuyahoga is now a trout fishing stream again, not too far outside of Cleveland. Here's where we left atmospheric pollution leading up to Earth Day in 1970. Here's what's been happening since. We We don't worry about unhealthy air. We should. Pollution is still too high in a lot of places, we don't get smog alerts anymore. Our particulate air pollution levels are less than a tenth of what they were at the time of Earth Day. And if we check in with our, um, I'm sorry, if we think about global warming, which we can all agree is a dire problem and a problem that's getting worse, the instant I start thinking about it as a type of pollution, as pollution caused by greenhouse gases, the problem becomes clearer to me. And I say this, I don't say this to minimize the problem or or trivialize the problem at all. All I'm trying to do is categorize the problem properly. Because once you think about greenhouse gases as pollution, then you understand the toolkit for addressing them. And in particular, the toolkit that works really well for other kinds of atmospheric pollution is put a price on the pollution. Make it a thing that businesses have to spend on, like they spend for every other material out there, and then watch them try not to spend money on it. Watch them flee from that cost. This is what drove down our air pollution levels so much. Uh, I imagine a lot of us in this room have at least two friends who are economists. (laughs) If you have at least two economist friends, you realize that economists agree on nothing. And your two friends or any number will just fight endlessly about any topic in economics. I say this to bring up the fact that economists are not fighting about the most powerful tool to address global warming, to address greenhouse gas pollution. This is an open letter arguing for a carbon tax And in particular, a carbon tax where the government doesn't keep the money, it just sends it right back out to the citizens of the country, called a carbon dividend. This letter was originally signed by a few dozen economists. By now, the open letter has been signed by more than 3,500 prominent economists. This has never happened before in the history of the discipline. (laughs) They would not sign a letter about the sun rising in the east. But the, the level of unanimity here, about the the most powerful policy tool that we have to combat global warming is just incredibly clear. It's very frustrating that we're not doing this. We're not even taking it very seriously. Um, Here's where we left our whales in the early 1970s. That's where the blue whales were. Here's where they are now. They're not all the way back and they might never get back to those previous levels. But one phrase that I learned from Stuart the last time he and I were together is one that I just carry around with me all the time. Uh, Stuart didn't invent this, but he he said it, and I thought it was fantastic. It's nature bats last. And if you carry that idea around, you just come to the conclusion that, look, we, we make mistakes, and we shouldn't make them, but if we can get out of the way, if we can leave, if we can leave the field, let the oceans repopulate, don't hunt there anymore, stop farming that land, and let it go back to nature, nature can rejuvenate. It's astonishingly resilient. Nature actually bats last. So these are the problems that we've identified. The solution here is not computers and capitalism. The solution here for the problems of pollution and species loss is an aware public and a government that responds to its public, to good evidence, to expert opinion. And if you put all four of these things together, in the book I call these the four horsemen of the optimist. (laughs) as a bit of a counterpart to some of the apocalyptic thinking that's going on these days. And when all of these four horsemen ride together, I get really confident that the state of the world and the human condition are going to improve simultaneously. I started with a litany of woes. Let me end with a litany of some of the really fantastic things that are going on. And I luckily, I didn't have to dig too hard for these either. This is what's been happening to the number of people living in extreme poverty around the planet. Again, this is not a percentage. This is the number of people living in a consistent measure of deep poverty. That number is lower than it was 200 years ago in 1820. A lot of people say this is a China phenomenon. It absolutely is. It's not exclusively a China phenomenon. Every region of the world is lifting its people out of the deepest poverty. Every region in the world is making more and more calories available to its people. I've got a thin line drawn there at 2,500 calories. That's an important benchmark because it's about what an active adult male needs to maintain his body weight. As recently as 1980, the world's average person did not have access to 2,500 calories a day. Every region in the world is providing its people with that much on average. Every part of the world is enrolling more kids in school. Lifespans are increasing in every region of the world. The um, countries of Southern Africa are finally past the terrifying AIDS crisis and their average lifespan is increasing. Uh, We talk about inequality a great deal for reasons that are obvious and we need to have this conversation. I just wanna point out there are some aspects of inequality that are decreasing very quickly, important aspects of inequality, maternal and child mortality. Those inequalities are decreasing. I am not saying for a second that they're low enough, that this inequality has vanished. It hasn't. We have a lot of work ahead of us. But I love this phrase that I've heard from Hans Rosling, this is a bad old world, and it's getting better. So I want to end with an image that is just unapologetically plucking at your heartstrings, but it's not Photoshop. Can we solve our big problems? And I'll actually refine that question a little bit. Can we resolve our big problems while continuing our growth, our mania for growth? Yeah, we absolutely can. I think the evidence is overwhelming on us. We can absolutely do it. Uh, Here's the final image I want to share with you. Again, I'm not making this up. The whales are back off the coast of New York City. How's that for a good one to end on? Thank you.
2: <clears throat> I should point out um, Andy's book has got all these graphs and a lot of economics and also a lot of stories like the right whale story that I had never heard before. Yeah. I mean I was part of the Save the Whales movement. We did save <laughs> a fair amount of whales. Uh, I should point out actually that the the California blue whale is back to the original level it is was that right? before we started whaling. Not the the southern Atlantic one, I guess you were talking about, but the local ones are. And um, that you would call it the right whale because it was the one that would float, and I could see it would not be good. You harpoon the guy, oh my God, a lot of blubber, oops.
3: Yeah, whoops.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Having a whale sink on you has got to be one of the worst things when you're a whaler. (laughs) Um... Let's talk about these bets, Mm because you you didn't make a part of the talk. Uh, We got a slide. Let's look at the slide. Do we see? Ah, we see it here. Um, In 2029, these are all 10 year bets. The U.S. will consume less total energy than it did. Does now in 2019 will produce less total CO2 emissions. Uh, The next one is less tonnage of rare earth elements. It sounds like Julian Simon betting Paul Ehrlich and winning. There, there is a little shout out there, yeah. So sort of summarize, what are these things all basically sort of uh, just massive output
3: and prices and things like that or what? They're a combination of these two things that I highlighted in response to the second problem. We're, mm-hmm. we're using up all the world's bounty. Right, right. I don't think we are. I, and I think the evidence for that is that things are getting more affordable mm-hmm. and the U.S. economy is dematerializing. We're using less stuff year after year. Mm-hmm. So these bets are a combination of those two ideas mm-hmm. and my prediction that they're going to continue. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason I think that you and your colleagues were so smart to create the long bets mm-hmm. uh, uh, organization mm-hmm. is, as is Alex Tabarrok, who's a pretty good economist, put it, bets are a tax on bullshit. And to be be really honest, I am tired of some Mm. of the Malthusian, uh, Mm. overly gloomy bullshit that I Mm. hear about everything going to hell in a handcart. And I'm not saying everything is fine. These things are going to get better instead of worse in Mm. the future. And I will put money behind that. So in a sense, what we're trying to do with long bets is make predictions accountable and
2: falsifiable. Yep. So it's often the case you got to get really specific about how you're going to measure And the deal is that when the time is up, and Now promises that we will adjudicate yep. with a panel of experts if needed as to who won the bet. Um, and unfortunately, money doesn't change hands between the bettors at that point because you're not allowed to bet yep. except on poker in Nevada in the United States. It's illegal. So what you do is, uh, if you win, you not only get the money you put in, but the money that the other guy put in, and the interest that's grown in the 10 years or whatever since then, long bets, fair amount of interest. And then that goes to uh, the charity that you would love to see get a bunch of money
3: and notoriety. So that's the deal. Yep. Are you putting up $100,000? Well, only if the other side puts up that much money. Which is not happening yet, but if I find, if I, it, look, it is unethical to let suckers keep their money. I deeply believe that. And if there are that many suckers, gloomy, pessimistic suckers, fine, bring it on. And then charities 10 years from now will have 200K plus interest. Let's do it. So if other, and other people can respond to your bets,
2: they can put up bets
3: that you might join on some of
2: these subjects, yeah. it sounds like. Okay. The hard
3: part, which you pointed out, is mm-hmm. making them falsifiable and accessible. Right. That's why this language is kind of specific and nerdy, because we have to have, as you know, we have to have ways for your experts to benchmark who won these things. Well, a lot of these things,
2: there gets to be all sort of short versions of the notion. And... Um, the thing I heard about a lot in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was peak oil. Yeah. And there were books about how, once we had peak oil, we were going to hit it, and know, was the King Hubbard and all yeah, those kind of yeah, things. It was going to run out of oil in the ground, and then there would be this economic collapse, and we're not ready for that, and uh, part of the environmental movement was loving the idea of everything coming to a screeching halt, yep. so we kind of bought into that. <laughs> and then I got to working for Royal Dutch Shell for a while, and what I learned from inside that world is there's a whole lot of undiscovered oil, a lot of oil that they were not talking about. A whole lot of discovered oil that they were obviously keeping quiet not to let the competition know oh, about. Okay. And there was no prospect of peak oil. And nobody ever said peak coal because you know, it's a major part of the surface of the earth. But that peak oil concept Which was, in a sense, an economic concept, but it was just—it was a fantasy. It was a story that whose clarity seemed so obvious. The population bomb had a similar quality. We tell these stories that what happens, what invites that swearing allegiance to a story that leaks its truth over time but doesn't leak allegiance of the people who believe it. What's going
3: on with that? I, I wish you had an answer for that one. I thought I'd come to you with that question because I don't quite get it. The, mm-hmm. the reluctance of people to honestly try to honestly look at evidence and to abandon their priors mm-hmm. is just one of the most enduring aspects of the human condition, I think. And people just keep doubling down on things that, that I think have been pretty thoroughly debunked. Uh, the, the pros don't. So like you probably know, inside the oil and gas industry, mm-hmm. people still talk about peak oil, mm-hmm. but they mean peak demand, right. not peak supply. Which has happened in Europe that peak demand
2: for a lot of material yeah. things, apparently.
3: Yeah, and like- I think the insiders think, every year they think that peak oil demand globally is going to come a little bit sooner,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: but we, you know, we still walk around. I, I grabbed headlines very easily about the looming resource crisis, the, the looming affordability crisis. I, I just think it's insane. Joshua asks, is there a maximum human carrying capacity on Earth? Uh, Yes, but I don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is. And all of our previous limits, all of our previous estimates of what that capacity is have been meaningless, have been just unbelievably wrong and bad. So you've come out in favor of nuclear power. As Uh, have you. Thank you. And... I it, learned from the best.
2: Uh, it hasn't changed massive minds yet, but maybe it will in light of climate change. But I have heard from George Dyson, who thinks kind of like his father, Freeman Dyson, mm-hmm. in planetary, multi planetary terms. His worry is that if we get uh, a lot of cheap, clean, safe nuclear, or move on to fission, uh, to fusion, and you know, even more, that that squanderably cheap, clean energy would lead humanity into an, an excess behavior. But excess as you, an economist, excess believe of that what? okay, numbers, people, population is an issue at that scale.
3: Now, the, the reason that comp- that countries go through the demographic transition and have fewer kids right. is not because they become too fo- poor to afford them. Right. It's because they become so rich they don't need as many farm hands out there. The, the affluence is what causes family size to go down. We observe this over and over. So if suddenly a, a household line item goes to zero, energy goes to zero, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to start having eight kids? It, just, it's, it, it flies in the face of all of this evidence and all this history. I just I don't get it. Okay, carbon taxes. <clears throat> Max Nova asked.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you advocate <clears throat> pricing carbon, but doesn't figuring out the price Require predicting costs for in the future? Isn't long-term economic forecasting impossible? Uh, So is a carbon tax going to, you know, what keeps a carbon tax rational in a sense?
3: Yeah, it's a good question because our ability to forecast anything long-term, especially Mm. uh, economic indicators, is Mm. just laughably bad, and yet we still do it Mm. a bunch. That doesn't mean that we can't make a decent estimate, a decent Mm -hmm. short-term estimate, and calibrate that carbon tax over time. It's exactly what we did with cap and trade programs with sulfur sulfur dioxide pollution and lots of other things. Cap and trade sort of the market partly decides that or what? Yeah, the government sets the cap Mm -hmm. and then companies, and it lowers the cap year Mm -hmm. after year. So we've got to figure Mm -hmm. out the rate of lowering. We've got to figure out who's got the right to, to, who has the initial pollution allowance under cap and trade. These are really complicated things, Mm -hmm. but they're not impossible. And the reason you hire a team of good economists to help you think through this is because they can do a lot better than just blind chance at figuring out what the right level of a carbon dividend is or what the right structure for a, a, trade, for a market to trade these things is. They gave the Nobel Prize last year in economics to William Nordhaus right. in large part for his work on the carbon dividend. It's a hard problem. It's not impossible. In your, <clears throat> so the price
2: of it, what should be the tax on a ton of coal, say. It's
3: you do it. There's on, probably a number in your mind. That I we need. I don't know what the what Nordhaus says the optimal initial tax is, mm-hmm. and you don't tax the coal. You tax the carbon generated by burning the coal. You tax the pollution itself, mm-hmm. and then what economists say that I wholeheartedly agree with is once you get that structure basically right get the hell out of the way and let the market figure out how to reduce those costs. We see how well that works with other kinds of resources. If you make pollution a costly thing, businesses will innovate like crazy to bring that cost down. The, the mistake that I keep making, even though this is what I'm supposed to do for a living, I keep underestimating human ingenuity and inventiveness it's really easy to do. And I think if we actually put a real carbon tax in place, we we would see the situation change more quickly than we're anticipating. Okay. So Jed Harris asks, why
2: are uh, US productivity statistics flat since
3: 2000? And I see we're just about out of time, thank you. it's, it's a really deep mystery, and we, I don't think we have great answers for it. And in a sense, it conflicts this amazing you know, technology-driven story that I'm telling. If we were living in this amazing era of tech progress the first place that an economist would go look for evidence of that is the productivity statistics. And like you point out, they've been super underwhelming for over a decade. Mm-hmm. I, I think the best answer to that comes from, no surprise, Eric Brynjolfsson, my, my co-author and colleague on a bunch of things. And he says the, um, the time lag between the appearance of a really powerful new technology toolkit and the appearance of the effects in the productivity statistics, that ain't years, it can actually be decades. So I think for example about artificial intelligence and machine learning, which are clearly gonna transform the economy and clearly have not done so yet. Right. They've changed a few industries, they make my phone easier to use, my, you know, I can sort my pictures more easily. Hasn't transformed healthcare yet, but it's going to. So I, I think we're gonna look back in you know, 2040, 2050 and laugh at our concerns about the productivity slowdown.
2: And if it, if it transforms healthcare, how does that affect uh,
3: productivity and GDP and things like that. Well, I use healthcare as an example because it will it'll transform manufacturing, it'll transform logistics, it'll transform commerce. And those are the areas where we'll see the biggest bang for the buck in the productivity statistics. But one thing I'm trying to point out in More From Less is that the material productivity, the amount of GDP per molecule in the economy has been skyrocketing in a way that we've never seen before. So you did this earlier book, <clears throat> The Second Machine Age. When did you do that? 2014, it
2: came out. Okay, that was a few years ago. And doing the research for this book,
3: what was surprising or news to you since you did the work on Second Machine Age? When when Eric and I wrote Second Machine Age, I had no idea of this phenomenon of dematerialization. I just didn't know that we were, in America, using, in aggregate, fewer resources. And Mm -hmm. my intuition would would have been exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was trying to show with some of those quotes, as economies grow, they consume more stuff. Duh. I read this wonderful essay by a guy you might know named Jesse Ozabel. Good friend. Yeah, and just a wonderful thinker. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this essay, that I remember it vividly, the title was The Return of Nature, How Technology Liberates the Environment. Mm-hmm. And, like, you gotta click on that headline, right? Right. So I read it, and he's, and he's talking about this thing called dematerialization, like, that, he's, He's wrong about He's missing something. That's not how growth works. It's not mm-hmm. how economies work. But he's a very careful scholar, and he listed all of his sources. So I went there and downloaded the data, and I'm banging on it. I'm like, mm-hmm. holy cow, he's right. And if anything, I think he's lowballing this phenomenon. So there's a book down there. So I think he was saying the U.S. was at
2: peak farmland, and the world may be at peak yep. farmland or almost there. Yep. Uh, it's like Hans Rosling saying we're at peak children yeah. in terms of population. Uh, there's talk about peak, peak timber, uh, with less and less yeah. uh, stuff going into paper, and so on, which I guess is part of your the, the, the rich world is,
3: story. The rich world is reforesting quite quickly, not mm-hmm. yet in, the, in some of the lower-income countries, but they'll mm-hmm. turn the corner too. And one thing I said in the book, which gets reinforced by all this great satellite data that we have, the Earth is now getting greener year after year, not browner. And that's great news for a lot of reasons. Again, it ain't enough. We need to do more. But let's celebrate the fact that we're re-greening the Earth finally. Um
2: Ryan Phelan asks, what about water? It's a natural
3: resource.
2: How does that relate to population growth? Have you tracked on water use at all? I guess you did with agriculture.
3: In America, it's pretty clear. And another stat that I didn't put in the book is that Los Angeles today uses as much water in total as it did... I think 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a much bigger city. It's got a bigger economy. That water use has flatlined. The problem with water is like the problem with a lot of other resources. Uh, Sand is another one that very often they don't have a price. You can just go take as much of it as you want. And when that's the case, you see all kinds of really harmful behavior. We just deplete that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just an example of the tragedy of the commons. But computer chip quality sand is, I think, a scarce resource, right? It has spiked, mm-hmm. and there was this great story in Wired a couple of years ago about these guys who worked, I think it was from Motorola, mm-hmm. and they would take big chunks of super high quality silicon and home in their lunch boxes and then sell it on the black market. And A, they got busted, mm. and B, that would not be a productive thing for them to do anymore because the price is created for that kind of silicone. Because what happens is somebody spins up another factory and generates all the silicone that you want. Uh, sil- Silicon that you want. We're not running out of sand in the world. That is not a thing that's happening. Peak
2: sand. Right, that,
3: yeah. <laughs> Alexander Rose asks, "How do you think eventual
2: population decrease will affect all these economies and quality of life?" And so we've got some examples already where Japan and Russia are losing population yep. absolutely. Yep.
3: Uh, and China will start pretty quickly. They have now, a demographic problem. Look at that. That's going to be a different one in. Oh, okay. But here's Japan. The um, big question
2: with nations now is, do they get rich before they get old? Yeah And Japan got rich before it got old. Uh, Russia, not so much. Um, Some people are saying uh, Japan is like a whole nation sort of just retired. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and and very happy retirement, right? Right. Stable, calm society can they replace the absence of a young working population with robots or,
3: or does it matter or how does that work? I think the main reason that population declines matter and especially working age population declines is that the way we've set up our retirement systems throughout the world hmm. is that current workers pay for current retirees. Right. And we might need to reconfigure that as the balance between retirees and workers changes, like it's going to. Right. The good news is that we will be wealthy enough to deal with that problem mm-hmm. if we are thoughtful about it. The economic growth makes societies more abundant, more affluent, mm-hmm. gives us more money to spread around. We can solve the, it's called the dependency ratio. We mm-hmm. can solve that problem, I don't pretend it's easy, mm-hmm. and we will need a lot more robots, but we're gonna get a lot more robots. So I'm worried about the, the payment system for retirement around the world. I'm not worried that our aggregate output is Mm -hmm. going to crater because there aren't enough workers anymore. That just seems a little silly to me.
2: Uh, Okay, what about China, which is facing what they call a population precipice, uh, partly because of the one-child policy, partly just because. Growing affluence, not nearly as far as Japan, say, yet, uh, but moving fast but a real cliff, more of a cliff than maybe any society we've ever seen. It just happens to be the largest and, you know, in many ways, most significant one in the world. What happens in China with the population?
3: I, I don't know. Turn around. I, I, I really don't know. And I would rather have our problems than China's problems, as I try to take a long view here. In particular, the things that I see Xi doing... Mm -hmm. are more central planning, more old-fashioned command and control of a very large economy, and wow, is that a recipe for economic disaster somewhere down the road. So say a little bit about your formula of
2: the sort of um, active citizenry and responsive government. What are the shining examples of that going well? What are the not-so-shining examples of uh, getting trapped of it not being able to go well?
3: And I'll... I'll stick to domestic examples just okay. because I, I, I know it best there. Uh, I am incredibly nostalgic for the Montreal Protocols about CFCs, right? Because a couple guys published a paper, it was either science or nature, they published one paper where they said, hey, there are these things called CFCs and they, they might be contributing to a depletion of this thing called the ozone layer. The science wasn't even settled yet. And of course, all the CFC producing industry said, well, the science isn't settled. we got to wait and see, let's not be hasty. But we listened to that research. We realized there was a problem. And not just in this country, but around the world, we came together to put a very effective limit and then a ban in place on those chemicals. We were helped because at some point, somebody kind of walked up to DuPont and said, hey, the chemicals you're making now are off patent, Mm -hmm. the next generation you can make a lot of money off of. And then industry got on the right side of that problem pretty quickly. I'm really nostalgic for that. The greenhouse gas problem is so much harder Mm -hmm. because there's no equivalent of a chemical that's off patent versus on patent. Companies are just gonna see their cost structure increase and it's not limited to a few companies, a few industries. It's just generated by human activity. So it's a tougher problem to solve. Politically, conceptually, it's the same kind of thing. So I get really nostalgic for the days of the Montreal Protocol and are listening to the experts on this one. I get really, uh, really concerned about the current administration's attempts to roll back our current pollution standards. Mm-hmm. And I, did you see this story in the Times just a few days ago? The n- air pollution deaths have increased since 2016, And are probably responsible for about 10,000 additional early deaths from air pollution in America since 2016. As far as we can tell, that's about twice as many people as died from early deaths from the Chernobyl disaster. This is a terrible problem, and we're going in the wrong direction. Okay, so one always overplays the thinking about the
2: future based on sort of current events. But current events in the U.S. politically in UK politically in various places where autocracies and populist autocracies are coming on strong. Massive crowds in the streets uh, protesting about significant things where it's going on year after year, more and more. Uh, is there some kind of political
3: irresponsiveness of becoming hip on what's going on here? I, I, I don't know, and okay. I, spent, I, I spent a chapter of the book scratching my head about that. <laughs> Because it, but I, I agree. Thanks a lot. I'm sorry. but No, but it's a, it's a real phenomenon. Yeah. It's not confined to one <clears> country. <throat> it's not confined to countries that have too many immigrants or are going through a bad recession. It's a really broad-based phenomenon, and it's scary as hell. Uh, th- that chapter opens with a quote from Jim Mattis. Mm-hmm. And a reporter a couple of years ago asked Mattis, who was still the SecDef at the time, he said, what are you most worried about? And Mattis' answer had nothing to do with China, Russia, North Korea, ISIS... Al-Qaeda, whatever, he said, a lack of friendliness back home. He said, we have just, he just we feel so isolated. We feel like we're just shouting at each other and we're so angry all the time. And I think a, a sociologist would say he's describing a decline in social capital. He's describing a decline in trust in institutions. He's de- describing a, just a willingness to even try to come together and solve big problems. I think he's right. I think all those things are going on. And in the face of these problems that we still have, it's scary as hell. Thank thank you all for coming out.
2: (laughs) Well, it's... But it's it's, it's hard... It's it's interesting how a a kind of a good news book like yours, uh, we can do more uh, from less, we are doing ever more from ever less, is basically your statement. Look, these trends are in place and they're, they're structural, so they're gonna keep getting better. How does a book like that play into a set of populaces going through the kind of thing we just
3: described? We, we have to continue to think that we can persuade people with logic and evidence-based arguments. Like I, if I didn't wake up every day and believe that there was some chance that we could do that, yeah, I'd, I'd just stay in bed depressed as hell all day. And it's, it's easy to lose that faith right now because a lot of the dominant rhetoric that we hear is untethered mm-hmm. from reality and evidence. <clears throat> and we've got a crop of brilliant populists and demagogues these mm-hmm. days who are winning the rhetorical battles. And I think that means that our side, let's call, them, let's call ourselves the reality-based community.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, we get no. together in the bars and just... Talk facts.
3: No, but no, exactly. That won't work, right? That won't work. Another one of the mantras that I carry around. This one I didn't learn from you, but another one of the mantras I carry around is a sad one. It says, "You will never displace a feeling with a fact." So, ow, that's tough, right? So, how do you try, how do you try to start meeting somebody halfway who's got this very different worldview, and in in the face of all these forces of polarization? How do you start? And I think we have some good ideas about how to do that. One thing I say in the book is there are very few people who are actually indifferent to environmental degradation or human suffering. Like, you got to be pretty far out before that doesn't matter to you. So, if you can start with some common ground and say, look, I, I'm pretty sure you don't want to see the bison go extinct. Can, can we start there? Okay, I'm pretty sure you don't want to go back to smog filled skies. Can we start there? And then just try to build up a conversation. It, it's, hey, look,
0: well, Mike, that, okay, please. it's and a little
3: blithe, I, I grant you that. That that story I know
2: a bit, which is the bison were saved by the pigeons. The passenger pigeons went extinct. Nobody believed that a continentally yeah. uh, abundant population, island populations went extinct all the time. Everybody knew that. Yep. Uh, Jefferson didn't even know that extinction was a possibility. Wow. Uh, it's that recent uh, a discovery. And then the passenger pigeon went extinct. Everybody in the U.S. knew about passenger pigeons because they were this phenomenon. Yeah, and then they're gone. And then they're down to zero. At which point, people like Theodore Roosevelt said, the bison have been, you know, I went hunting for bison. I couldn't find one all day. Actually, all month. And and then he started and some other people at various museums, Smithsonian and so on, turned that around and the bison are on the way back. On the way back. And... um, What's my point? The point is, it. Do you want me to stall while you? No, think of it, it? you know what is the equivalent in terms of climate, Oof. or in terms of political responsiveness of government and of, uh, of the engaged populace? What is the equivalent of losing the passenger pigeon in relation to climate? So right now, everybody's trying to put hurricanes and forest fires as. Yeah. Uh, an indicator at least and a consequence to some degree of climate change yeah. Yeah. sea level rise and uh, you know they get the di- we had Jeff Goodell here talking about daylight you know sunlight floods in florida and so oh, wow. on and what he was continuing to see is the prices of property that were getting flooded in the sunlight <laughs> were not going down yet <laughs> that was actually when i started to get bleak about all this because you would expect the people on the front lines of things actually caused by climate change, like sunlight flooding and king tides, that they would be going, Oh, well, even though I'm in Florida, even though we have, you know, the Republican perspective on all this, this is too real to uh, not start admitting what's happening. But there is some turnaround. So, I guess I'm going to be looking for, sooner than later, please, some sense that the passenger pigeons are going extinct, and if we want to save the bison, we've got to do something that is much more active than we have, does that
3: make it? It makes a ton of sense, and I don't think there'll be one precipitating event like the extinction of the passenger pigeon. That's the problem. Yeah, I agree. But I I do think that most people uh, outside of our elected officials are aware of climate change, believe it, and believe it's bad. Mm And that awareness is getting better over time. Uh, how do we harness that and turn that into collective action? And why has that not happened yet? I don't know. But, the, but the, we're, not, we're not ignorant of the problem or unconcerned about it. I, I, too many of us are just convincible that the costs uh, cost are gonna to be too high or that, That's interesting. So, denial, okay, we're going through denial,
2: it sounds like. I think denial past- is the easiest thing to do with a threat that large. Yeah. Like,
3: you're going to die. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, or, or you just swing all the way other into fatalism and, like, we're screwed and there's nothing I can do about it, which is equally
2: that's, yeah.
3: unhelpful. Yeah. Well, at least let's get to bargaining, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah. <laughs> But, let, but my point is, and the thing I try to say in the book is, let's elect people who will put in place the toolkit that is proven to work—the thing that we know will work. Mm-hmm. A carbon dividend, properly constructed, will work. So Much you, more like, you power like the dividend? You like the money going
2: straight? Remember uh, when this was first proposed a few years ago? People said, "Oh yeah, right. You just want the money to go right back to the everybody." Yeah. Say why?
3: Uh, because it's an easier sell get a check from the government, sounds pretty good. Right. A lot of people don't trust the government to spend their money pretty well. And you do want to help out the people whose household budgets are going to be inflated because of the price on carbon. That, that's a legitimate thing, that will happen. And then uh, in terms of uh, making more equality,
2: does every individual in the nation that does this get the same amount of money? And,
3: and, and I talked about this as so a- So that's many, progressive. Yeah, so this is the only place where not economists agree Where they start to disagree is on exactly that question. Should it be Mm -hmm. calibrated based on income Mm -hmm. or should rich people and poor people get the same size carbon dividend? And that's where the economic arguments break out. I think that's a second-order question. The Mm -hmm. first one is just get it in place and get the tax high enough that -hmm. companies will actually change their behavior.
2: So those 5,000 economists that like the carbon tax, do they also like that dividend?
3: The economist statement says give the same check to everybody. Wow. Yeah. All
2: right, that's interesting. Well, here's uh, Liz Roller with a question dear to my heart. She's saying we've decoupled um, uh, and we've got dematerialization going along on manufacturing and so on. What about maintenance? Is the cost of maintenance of all these things going down or up or are
3: you keeping track? Uh, That's a great question. I did not look at that for the book. Um, My guess is that our ability to predict when complicated, expensive pieces of machinery are about to break, that, mm. pre- that predictability is going up pretty quickly. Right. So we'll be doing better preventative maintenance on a lot of these expensive things. Now, it is true... Good for you. That's a very subtle piece, which is,
2: I'm discovering in my own research, actually the case, especially in manufacturing and aircraft and things like that, where they're able to detect not deterioration of the behavior of the machine yet, but they can detect that there are signals that the... It is about to start losing efficiency.
3: And an airline really doesn't want to take that really expensive asset out of mm-hmm. service for any length of time. They'd rather do a scheduled maintenance on it. So, so I it's think, like boxcars and that. Yeah, thing. I think yeah. that's a phenomenon. It is true, though, that a lot of the appliances that we buy, mm-hmm. we don't maintain because they don't last for 30 years anymore. They're designed for a shorter life. Mm-hmm. And I hear people say how terrible that is. Do you know how energy-efficient that 30-year-old washing machine was? I'm I'm totally serious. The the motor used a ton more energy. It used a ton more water Mm -hmm. per load. And that thing's kind of an environmental nightmare. We should get rid of it.
2: And the refrigerators, when you open the door, all the cold air fell off the floor. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it is the case um, people who are getting uh, totally electric cars are shocked at their uh, repair bills, which basically disappear because there's no fluids except the windshield washer fluid. Yeah,
3: and the number of moving parts is a very small fraction of your transmission.
2: And so it's it's changed the economics of car dealerships because part of what keeps car dealerships going is they're repairing the cars that they sell. This doesn't work for Tesla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's part of why the whole dealership thing is completely different for these electric cars. And I can tell you, I've got one, and and, there were... That's in
3: the shop thing, uh, just goes away. And and in general, uh, you know, incumbent (laughs) incumbents resist big change. That's just that's how incumbents behave. The status quo is generally good to them. They want to perpetuate it. So the forces of disruption have an uphill battle. But that's that's why you like capitalism because it keeps. Exactly because it it rewards disruption. Right. We need more of that, not less.
2: Uh, you get pushback on what parts of your uh, formula here, mostly? All of them. Really? <laughs> fill, fill in the blank. Because they're good news or because people disapprove of this, that, or the other thing? Like capitalism? I've had some
3: really good pushback on specific claims that I've made and some mm-hmm. evidence that I drew on. Some, some really helpful discussions have happened. But in general, I think there is a law of conservation of pessimism out there in the universe.
1: Ooh. <laughs> Ooh
3: almost a book there. Yeah, I've and got, then if you, if, if you... you,
2: you're also, speaking like a,
3: either a physicist or an economist here, conservation pessimism? Come pessimism, on. yeah. If you, want to, if you want to feel bad about the world, then you're going to resist any attempt to say, actually, you know, infant and child mortality is, is decreasing. Mm-hmm. And then they argue with you, and thanks to this amazing website, you, we spend time on Our World and Data. This is, this is the nerd's favorite website. It's yeah. an amazing resource. And you can just point anybody, and there's really systematic, really good data on declines in mortality, for right. example. Mm. Then they find something else to get upset about, and then I, I want to say this very carefully, that the law of conservation of pessimism tends to have its last um, battlement on climate change, hmm. and and I've heard people say these things that you're saying are maybe they're kind of interesting. Yay, you know, yay, dematerialization. Nothing else matters. Accept climate change, and we are still doomed because of global warming.
2: Yeah.
3: and that's where the, that's where this kind of pessimistic, fatalistic argument kicks in. And at some point, you just have to kind of stop. You say, "Look, if if you want to walk around pessimistic, uh, I, I I can't stop you. All I have, all I have, again, is logic and evidence. If that doesn't work, go be unhappy." Well, I guess the question
2: there is, does does the presence of climate change as an issue? and the presence of climate change as being impactful on, for example, developing nations in the global south and so on, does it affect the trend lines, the mechanics of the trend lines that you're reporting on? It,
3: It probably will. I think the magnitude of those impacts is extremely unclear. Mm-hmm. I am not trying to. I'm not a lukewarmer. I'm not trying to present myself that way. Those dynamics are extremely unclear, and I just saw today, as I was getting ready for this talk, that is that the IPCC has lowered some of its estimates. Because renewables are getting so much cheaper so quickly that they actually think the world's energy trajectory is now going to look different than their previous estimate, and that brings down the overall amount of warming that they're experiencing. I I, I don't want to quote this. This is not chapter and verse, but I just saw that today. Hmm. We're going to get. We're going to continue to get surprised by hmm. human ingenuity, and most of that ingenuity is going to go in helpful directions. So, for example, do I think as bad as as global warming is, it will. Um, we, we will no longer be able to feed ourselves in 2100? I absolutely do not believe that. Not for a second. There'll be challenges. We're good at meeting challenges.
2: Fair enough. Okay, uh, coming up to the end here, um, this, is, this book grew out of the last book, it sounds like. What's going to grow out of this book? Do you have another uh, domain that you're starting to look into or think about, or are you just living this one down? <laughs> <laughs>
3: It's like asking somebody who just left the battlefield, what war are you most interested in fighting next? (laughs) (laughs) I'm
2: sorry, this is a little more like football than world war. (laughs) Uh, As a uh, coach and player, you're going to probably do more books. You've been rewarded for doing some good ones, and I hope we reward you for this one. Uh, Are there domains you really want to explore at book level coming up?
3: Yeah, the, the next thing that I'm fascinated in tackling comes from a great quote from E.O. Wilson, There's mm-hmm. the, the astonishing uh, ant scientist, mm-hmm. who looked around at us, at this species. He, he had two great quotes. One was he said about communism, great idea, wrong species. <laughs> That's one of, the other great quote he said was he looked around at us and he said, we humans are super interesting. We have paleolithic minds, mm-hmm. medieval institutions, and godlike technologies. I think that's exactly right,
2: mm-hmm. and... Yeah,
3: and he, he was talking about Star Wars. Was he talking about Star Wars? Yeah. The, the movie specifically? Yeah, yeah. Ha! I didn't know that. <laughs> you just ask Stuart <laughs> any of these questions. But if that's true, and I think there's a huge amount of insight there. Mm-hmm. We can't change our minds overnight, we have pal- we're just wired that way. Mm-hmm. Our technologies are amazing, we have to work on our institutions. We have to get them out of the medieval era, the, the, the industrial era, and redesign them to be appropriate for this world that we live in now, taking into account how weird our brains actually are, and this astonishing toolkit that we have. So reformulating that w- is a really fun thing to think about. Okay, so you're an economist mainly, yes? I'm economist adjacent. What does that mean? I don't know. I I don't have an economics degree, but I hang out with economists all the time. Okay. What do you have a degree in, if anything? Never mind. (laughs) I'm an MIT
2: engineer by training. Oh, of course. That explains everything. Um, I hope you mean that as a compliment. I do. Okay, good. It means you try to solve problems, and you're probably good at it. so do you want to take on the design and improvement of institutions, yeah. is
3: that what we're talking about? Or more specifically, organizations, right? But I think organizations were designed for a world where information was scarce and where people were rational. One of those things is not true anymore, the other one never ever was. All right, let's, let's double down on that. When you look around, when I, when I come out to, um, to California and I talk to my friends who are just reinventing all kinds of stuff and launching these great companies, what I find fascinating is they're doing some things really differently than industrial age companies are doing. And I think there's a reason for that. I think they have internalized this insight from Wilson and they're trying to get around the fact that, that we're weird, right? And we have this mm-hmm. constellation of biases and things going on and that we still have to get work done out there and the thing called the company is the vehicle to do that. So they're kind of reinventing it to be more accurate about the way we work and, and the technologies that we have access to. Great. So, so the institutions you wanna change,
2: companies, nonprofits, I'm, government apparatus, what, what do you th-
3: I'm a business school guy, I'll start with companies. They're, they're an important set of organizations. Who's gonna Why gonna do, are you squinting who, at me? <laughs> who's
2: gonna do government? Who's uh, gonna do
3: government? You know, folk like Jen Polka are going to do government. Folk like Tim O'Reilly are going to do government. We have people here working on it. And, yeah, I, Tim is coming to dinner and talking about Outstanding.
2: <laughs> I like the idea of you taking on institutions, and we can't wait to have you back. Thank you for coming Stuart, tonight. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, Monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.